0: The church into this building. As I attempt to say every week, I think I get that in every week. Uh, if you're new, glad that you're here. As Jason mentioned, uh, we are currently uh, toward the back end, the closing chapters of a study of the book of Acts that uh, we've been after since last August, I believe, and we'll finish up next Sunday and then we'll move into our next sermon series. So if you are new, yes, you are here on the back end of a sermon series, but um, I can think of no more uh, applicable passage than the one that we're going to dive into this morning. For those who may not be familiar with the Bible, particularly the book of Acts, it's the story of the New Testament church. It's the story of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. It's the story of Jesus fulfilling his promise to build his church with the gates of hell powerless to stop it. This book of the Bible, as I've said numerous uh, times throughout this series, has it all. Magic and miracles, shipwrecks and snake bites. We'll see a shipwreck even this morning. Comedy and tragedy, rarely a dull moment uh, in the unfolding story of the early New Testament church. This morning is no different. The last two chapters of the book of Acts uh, tell the story of the Apostle Paul's treacherous journey to the city of Rome, the final recorded voyage in this epic adventure known as the book of Acts. Most certainly, as we'll see through just the sheer detail in this morning's passage, most certainly a historical account of an event that took place roughly a couple thousand years ago in the darkest waters of the Mediterranean, but also very parable-like in helping us to understand how to face our own darkened storms of life Creating a a ballast for our souls, you might say. In in the first century world of Hellenistic storytelling, Luke says, I have a story to tell. It's a true story. It's a story that happened to me and my friends on the high seas. And, And it's a story that if you'll listen closely, has the power to create in you an unrivaled courage and calm in the midst of your own perilous adventures. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 27. That's where we'll be this morning. There should be a Bible underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you if you don't own a Bible or uh, the one that you brought with you is difficult to track with. Uh, By the way, feel free to take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you if that's helpful. Let me pray for us because we've got quite a bit of ground to cover this morning, and then we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, we're about to dive into a passage that involves a number of your image bearers on the high seas which I think makes this an incredibly helpful and appropriate passage of scripture for pretty much anyone. There's a reason that so many songs are filled with the language of raging seas, of the storms of life, sea billows, that that kind of language of the waves crashing over us. There's a reason that the Psalms are filled with that kind of imagery because it resonates with us. We know what it's like to experience the storms of life, to be hit by the pummeling waves of circumstance. And so I believe this morning's time in the scriptures has uh, a a real possibility of being one of those sermons that we actually remember, Uh, one of those that actually sticks with us because there will be pummeling waves to come. There will be raging storms to face just like the Apostle Paul and his friends as we'll see momentarily. gotta pray that we would walk away fortified. I pray that we would uh, walk away, those of us professing followers of Jesus, with a, a courage and a calm that perhaps we didn't have when we walked into this place this morning. I pray that for those who come in not Christians, not professing Christians, that uh, there would be this, this beauty of, of the Christian worldview and how it comes to bear and speaks into the, the storms that we all face in life. God, would you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit? Spirit of God, we're desperate for you this morning to move in our midst, to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see and to hear and to receive that which you have for us in your living and active word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to stir our hearts, to convict us, to comfort us, to do your work. We ask these things in the name of the risen Jesus. Amen. So picking up the story where we left off, if you haven't been around, you're stepping in for the first time this morning, or perhaps you've been back in the kid's wing or out for a couple of weeks, Paul has essentially been imprisoned in the city of Caesarea for roughly two years, having been accused by the Jewish leaders of of threatening peace and desecrating the, the Jerusalem temple. These are not good accusations. He's recently made an appeal to present his case to the emperor in Rome, which he has every right to do as a Roman citizen. The only problem is that in order to send Paul to the city of Rome, the presiding governor of Caesarea, a man by the name of Festus, must list out the charges against Paul. He must put pen to paper, which normally would not be a problem except for the fact that Paul is innocent on every account, making it kind of a challenge to present some formal accusations. That helps to explain last week's episode where we saw the Apostle Paul present his defense before King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, the governor's attempt at at gaining some sort of clarity as to what the charges against Paul should be. Agrippa confirms that Paul is innocent of any charges and that he actually could have gone free had he not appealed to Caesar. That gives Festus the peace of mind that he needs to send Paul to Rome, having done all that he could do in his own estimation to prevent an injustice against a citizen of the empire, which leads us to chapter 27, this morning's passage. Picking up the story, in verse 1, we're told, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Just to to give a visual of where we're going this morning, here's a map behind me of Paul's journey to Rome, what some call Paul's fourth missionary journey. You, you can see up on the map, this whole thing begins down in the bottom right-hand corner in the city of Caesarea. Paul and his friends are going to sail from port to port and, and eventually end up on a bigger ship that makes its way west through the Mediterranean. We're going to end up on the island of Malta over on the left where a shipwreck occurs. And it's quite an incredible story and quite Remarkable that it is even condensed to 44 verses, okay? So uh, we're gonna go through this pretty quickly, but that's kind of your, your map. You may have that in the back of your Bible that you can refer to as well. Right out of the gate, we're given a few important pieces of, of information. We know that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul on this journey, verse one, when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy. Verse two, we put to sea. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and thus Luke is, is part of this Journey on the high seas. And, and Luke wasn't the only one present for the voyage. There was also Paul's good friend, Aristarchus, who traveled with Paul on his third missionary journey, if you were around for that part of, of our walk through this book of the Bible. He was there for the riot in Ephesus. He was one of a couple of men who was actually dragged into the Ephesian theater during that riot. We're told that, that Paul and his friends board a ship, along with a few other prisoners, all under the care of a centurion by the name of Julius. Based on the location of Adramidium, the ship itself was probably a a small coasting vessel that wasn't made for open sea voyages, but rather would dock at various ports along the coastline, which helps to make sense of the next few verses. Verse three tells us the next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Paul must have been considered respectable and trustworthy because he was allowed to leave the ship and go receive care from his Christian friends inland. And this is not the only time that we see the Apostle Paul commanding respect and trust in this morning's passage. It's a theme that carries throughout the transpiring events of of chapter 27. We'll get there soon enough. Verse 4 tells us, And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us under the the lee, meaning under the the shelter of. They were sheltered from the opposing winds by the island itself. So that, verse 5, when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So Paul and his Traveling companions are taking off the small coasting vessel, put on a, a bigger vessel, likely an Egyptian grain ship, traveling for Rome, more than 100 feet in length, able to transport 276 people, as verse 37 will tell us soon enough. Verse 7 says... We sailed slowly, now on the bigger ship, for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon and coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, which was near the city of Lycia. So already there are difficult winds that are taking the ship off course to come back to the map. If you look up there, um, for one, the, the ship itself, if, if you look at this middle island of Crete, right here in the center of the map, the ship should have just gone above that island, north of that island, and made its way westward straight to Italy, and, and the journey would have been over with. This is normally a five-week journey that we're talking about that ended up taking over four months for the Apostle Paul and, and the rest of those who were on board the ship The winds end up redirecting the ship to the southern coast of Crete, to a little harbor town known as Fair Havens. Verse 9 tells us, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. The fast is a reference to the the Day of Atonement, which would have, uh, normally taking place in late September, early October, which was an indication that they should not be on this boat in this moment. Late September was considered a dangerous season for sea travel. Mid-November considered impossible. So if you can kind of get your mind around it, the transpiring events of Acts chapter 27 classify somewhere between the dangerous and the impossible. Neither of those is a good word, right? It's like, Deciding to go on a vacation during hurricane season to the Mediterranean, you know what you're getting yourself into, right? You probably should get some travel insurance. And so Paul advises that they stay put, that they don't travel any further. Even though the harbor that they're docked at is not the greatest of harbors, Paul declares that further travel will likely result in injury and great loss. Second Corinthians 11, we're told, uh, for those of you who are familiar with that passage, Paul Uh, gives his laundry list of sufferings. And we're told in that list that Paul was shipwrecked three times. And so this is likely the fourth dangerous experience on the high seas for the apostle Paul. That's crazy, right? Lightning doesn't strike two times, much less four. And this man is caught up in a shipwreck for the fourth time in his life, meaning that he knows what he's talking about. Based on having weathered a few seafaring storms of of his own, Paul advises the captain and the crew of the ship to remain docked at Fair Havens for the winter. And there's even some irony in the name, Fair Havens, a haven being a place of safety or refuge. Maybe you should stay there, the author is telling us. But verse 11 goes on to say, However, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. And on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both the southwest and the, north, in the northwest, and spend the winter there. So both the captain and owner convinced it's, it's better to continue on. Let's keep going to seek dock for the winter at a harbor that's maybe a little bit more suitable for a large grain ship you kind of begin to see where the story's going based simply on the phrase, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, right? Who's signing up for the Caribbean cruise that markets itself with the phrase, with the wording, we pride ourselves in transporting people on the chance that somehow our ships might make it to their destination, Like, my wife won't even sign up for a cruise ship as it stands now with the certain promise that we will get to where the ship is meant to go. It's not looking good for the Apostle Paul and his friends here midway through uh, Acts chapter 27. Verse 13 says, Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, oh, it seems like things might go well, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore but soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. Word tempestuous comes from the Greek word, let me see if I can pronounce this rightly, tuphonikos. It's where we get the word typhoon. We're talking about a violent storm here, one that drives the ship away from the coastline, which isn't good, out into the open sea. So that verse 15 tells us, when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Right, so now you get this picture of the ships traveling at full speed with the howling wind at its back, headed for the dreaded Syrtis. Sounds like a Pirates of the Caribbean kind of moment, right? The Syrtis was a, a sandbar off of the North African coast that was known as a graveyard for ships. It was kind of like the Bermuda Triangle of Paul's day. And so fearing for their life, we're told that the crew does everything that they can to keep the ship from running aground. The smaller boat used to transport people from the ship to land is hoisted up. The ropes are tied around the hull and they begin to lower the gear in order to elevate the ship in the, the deadly shallows, you might say. Verse 18 says, And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You ever been there? One of those storms of life where everything seems hopeless, There's no possibility of rescue. This is such a terrible storm that both the sun and the stars are hidden behind the darkened clouds for days. And and keep in mind, in Paul's day, the sun and stars are the only hope of navigation. We're we're meant to, to see and sense the absolute hopelessness of the situation. Lost at sea, without cargo, without tackle, without sun, without stars, and ultimately, Without hope. like Even Luke himself has given up hope at this point. All hope of our being saved, says the author of the book of Acts, was at last abandoned. Verse 21 goes on to say, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. (laughs) Uh, I told you so. And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. whereas." Paul was speaking based on experience before. He now speaks based on a revelation from God through an angel, and it's good news for those on board the ship, right? Paul already knew he was gonna make it to Rome. You go back to chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus had told him so. The new information presented through this revelation by way of an angel is that everyone else, in addition to Paul, is gonna make it. It's the exact opposite of the story of Jonah, right? Jonah's presence on the ship in the midst of his disobedience endangers everyone else's lives, On the flip side, Paul's presence on this particular ship, in the midst of his obedience, his looking to Jesus, ensures everyone else's safety. Verse 27 goes on to tell us, Now when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven along the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. When the 14th night had come. You might have noticed I alluded to it a little earlier, the attention to detail here in chapter 27. You don't get that in a number of other chapters throughout the book of Acts, though you do get historical places and people and certain aspects that would allude to historical account. Here you get it in mass, And this is the fascinating thing to me. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come, little known fact, uh, it's estimated that a ship traveling under these kind of conditions in Paul's day would have drifted roughly 36 miles per day. The distance Paul's ship would have traveled since leaving that little harbor town of Fairhaven's, roughly 475 miles. You do that math, 475 divided by 36 a day, and you come up with a little over 13 days Give or take. How's that for historical accuracy? Remember, the book of Acts is an account of what actually happened in the days of the early church. Luke's telling this story in a Hellenistic world that would tell stories of of myth on the high seas. And Luke's saying that this is no myth. This is a story that's true. This is a story rooted in events that actually happened in human history, just like the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, by the way, who is the core and center of the very book of Acts. Acts. Verse 30 goes on to tell us, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. You have examples of unbelief here in the soldiers that are part of these verses. Having been given a promise of God for survival, through a revelation by way of an angel, from the lips of the apostle Paul, communicating those very promises of God, yet choosing not to believe God's word. I don't know about you, but I see myself in, this, in the sailors. Um, the, this abandoning of, of ship, this trying to grasp at my own rescue plan, my own way of survival, rather than trusting in, in the God of, of scripture and his promises, that That the sin underneath every sin, as we've talked about on a number of occasions as a church, is the sin of unbelief. We're meant to see ourselves in in those who sought to abandon ship. We're also meant to see the involvement of the apostle Paul. Have you noticed that? His various words of advice, his pleadings. He's very involved in what's going on in chapter 27. That though God has promised deliverance, Paul doesn't let go and let God to use a term that maybe many of us are familiar with. There's an element of human responsibility. Yes, God said, but under the banner of his divine sovereignty and promise are human beings moving the story forward by God's grace, trusting him. Verse 33 goes on to say, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, "Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, that's a long time to go without eating. Having taken nothing, he says, therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. You, You get Biblical imagery in a number of kind of ways, don't you? You kind of see the language of the Lord's Supper here. See the language of the daily manna in the wilderness, which wasn't to be stored by the Israelites in trust that God would provide more manna the next day. See the crew tossing the remainder of the wheat overboard after having eaten in an effort to strengthen their bodies for what what lay ahead. This declaration of trust that Paul's God would actually get them to shore that that they would eat another meal. Verse 39 tells us, now it was day and they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, left them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders Then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. In other words, land ho! They spot a a bay with a beach. Today what's what's actually referred to, believe it or not, as St. Paul's Bay, See it up on the screen behind me. It's a real place. story actually happened again. Kind of crazy to think that if you were to go there and look out on that vast expanse of water, that somewhere in those waters is perhaps the remains of a, of a ship that went down that represents this very passage, as we'll see in just a moment. They attempt to run the ship ashore, but... By casting off anchors, freeing rudders, turning the ship toward the island. But verse 41 tells us, Striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by by the surf. They don't make it to shore. The ship runs aground. Surf manages to tear the stern apart. Verse 42, closing out uh, this morning's passage, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape, which wouldn't be good, because then those in charge of the prisoners would be on the chopping block themselves. Verse 43 says, but the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Another near-death experience for the apostle Paul, no big deal, right? As the soldiers planned to execute him prevented by Julius, just as the plot to assassinate Paul in Jerusalem, if you recall, had been prevented by a scrawny nephew. Just a few chapters back, again, we see the invisible hand of God's providence all over this passage, not only in preserving the life of the apostle Paul, but ultimately in making good on his promises. God said that Paul would make it to Rome, and he does, as we'll see next week. God said that Paul would appear before Caesar, and he does, as we'll see next week. God said that none on, aboard the ship would be lost, and none of them are. As God had declared that all would be brought safely to land, so all are brought safely to land because that's what God does. He makes good on every single one of his promises. And so they end up on the island of Malta. It's where we'll pick up the story next week. It's a crazy story, Acts chapter 27, is it not? It's a story that, as has been declared throughout the book of Acts, over and over again, that God really is a promise keeper, that his word always proves true his invisible hand of providence cannot and will not be thwarted. That, as we've said throughout this series, there is no obstacle to the advancement of the gospel that God cannot overcome. There is no obstacle to the building of the church that God cannot overcome. But but why such peril on the high seas, you might ask? I mean, what what a crazy experience it must have been for the apostle Paul and his friends, along with everyone else who was on board that ship, right? Why? It's an incredibly appropriate question because it helps us to better understand the storms that that you and I face in life. David Gooding, professor emeritus at Queen's University, Belfast, and a well-known Bible teacher, he writes, "'From the moment they boarded the doomed ship to the cold, wild morning it broke up on the shore of Malta, there was no miracle.'" No divine power calmed the sea as some years previously Galilee's tempest had subsided in recognition of her master Jesus' voice. No angelic powers conveyed the ship unscathed into port. All the passengers and crew were saved, but only after two weeks and more of agonized suffering and a final inglorious hair-raising scramble from the wreck through the surf to the shore. He goes on to say, If Paul was God's own appointed apostle and ambassador sent to represent the gospel of God's own son to the highest authority on earth, and if God is the God who created and controls nature, who rules over the surging sea, and when its waves must mount up, still them, Psalm 89 then why did not God's kingly rule order the Mediterranean to give his ambassador a smoother passage instead of torturing him for two weeks and then throwing him up like a half-drowned rat on the beach? And that's the imagery of the end of Acts chapter 27. A bunch of rats floating to shore, hanging on for dear life. Why? I'm sure many of us have asked that kind of question in the midst of life's darkened storms. Perhaps... Some of you bringing that very question into this room this morning. I mean, one thing I think right out of the gate that we can say for sure is that for those of us who belong to Jesus, not one storm that we face in life is or ever will be the Father's wrath toward us. Paul says, Romans 8, one. Say it all the time around here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That Jesus experienced the, the greatest storm the world has ever known, the only storm that could truly destroy us. Jesus was thrown into the raging sea of god 's wrath, you might say, taking the, the punishment and paying the death, the debt that, that we as guilty sinners know deep down that we owe, so that we might know the greatest rescue from the greatest destruction. and so if you come into this place and you 're not a Christian, my prayer For you to use the the imagery, the picture of Acts 27, is that you would see yourself under the starless, darkened sky of God's wrath. A sinner in the heart of a storm that you can't possibly steer your way out of. That like those aboard the ship, that you would come to the end of yourself. Abandoning all hope in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. That you would see in the face of Jesus a great hope, the only hope for rescue, and that you would see him as glorious and beautiful, the one who took the storm upon himself so that you would never have to face it. It's the good news of the gospel. That without the gospel, there are only really two ways to face the storms of life. We can face them religiously, in self-righteousness, waving our fists at God every time something bad comes our way because we think that he owes us, that we've put him in our debt by way of our good works. Or irreligiously, cowering in self-loathing and fear that every storm is a getting of what's coming to us from the angry curmudgeon up in the sky who loves to hurl lightning bolts our way. The gospel declares that we deserve far worse than the storms of life, yet not one storm can be that of condemnation because Jesus Christ has already taken our condemnation in full upon himself, hallelujah. So that, Christian, the storm is not because God has forgotten you, nor is the storm because God doesn't love you. So why? Why the darkened storms of life? Why such peril on the high seas? With with Jonah... It's pretty easy to see, right? We're talking about a clear case of fatherly corrective discipline. God says, go east, Jonah goes west, just like you tell your kids not to step in the street, and they do, and you snatch them back with your hurricane arm to to save them and rescue them back to yourself, right? It's a display of God's grace, doing whatever it takes to bring a wayward child home. In Jonah's case, the storm was self-inflicted, right? As we can be honest, many of the storms that perhaps we face in life. Proverbs 3.12 says, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Hebrews chapter 12, verses seven and eight say it this way. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, the author of Hebrews says, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Sometimes a hurricane is God's grace to us. It's our father chasing after us in the midst of our rebellion. We talked about this when we walked through the book of Jonah. The most terrifying thing that God could do to use that Jonah language is to let us go to Tarshish. That's what theologians call the passive wrath of God. God giving man over to his sin. That if you're truly his child, he'll do whatever it takes to bring you home. So that for those presently facing the the self-inflicted storms of God's corrective discipline in the midst of rebellion, know this and strangely be encouraged by it. Know that you have a father who loves you so much that he will hurl a hurricane at you to get you back. That's not, however, the backdrop of Acts 27, is it? Not only has the apostle Paul failed to give us any evidence of rebellion, but on the contrary, he's expressed the deepest of desires to go to Rome. Acts chapter 19, verse 21 says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. I gotta go west. He says in Romans 1:15, which he's already written at, written at this point in the Acts story, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And that deep desire to go to Rome is one and the same with God's will for Paul's life. Again, coming back to Acts 23, 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you, you must also testify in Rome. This is no Jonah that we're talking about here, right? If anything, maybe a Job, a man whose afflictions came not because he was doing poorly, but because he was doing well. He was obedient to God's call on his life. And so again, we, we ask the question, why such peril on the high seas? I think there are probably a number of things that we could say. Right? We could chalk it up to the reality of what it means to live in a fallen world, simply put. A world with hurricanes, a world with sickness, a world with pain, a world with relational difficulty, a world with even death. We could chalk it up to God flexing his proverbial muscles, showing himself mighty in the midst of, of, of a hopeless moment for, for many of, of his image bearers on this boat. We could talk about how God shatters our pride through storms, creating a Christ-like humility in us. We could talk about how God increases our compassion through storms so that we can minister to others facing similar storms that perhaps we've gone through. And all of those things are, are most certainly true, right? And all things that we've talked about as a church along the way. But, but I want to focus in on two things that seem to be broader themes throughout the book of Acts for a moment as we bring this thing to a close and trying to make sense of it all. Number one, namely, that God establishes an anchor in the hearts of his people through the storms of life, a ballast for the soul to use that seafaring imagery, that the storms of life make us people of stability, creating in us a steadfastness like the Apostle Paul so that we can increasingly declared the storms of life like Paul to use his language to be light momentary afflictions. As crazy as that may seem. Preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as Paul goes on to say. Came across an old Tim Keller sermon this past week where Keller describes this ballast for the soul by way of a quote from Marjorie Williams Bianco. Anyone know who that is? She wrote a book that perhaps many of you have heard known as The Velveteen Rabbit. The story of a stuffed animal's desire to become real through the love of his owner. And in that story, there's this encounter. It goes something like this. Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's the thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit? Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become, takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily, or have sharp edges, or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. This is my daughter's version of the Velveteen Rabbit. I don't know if you can see it from here. It is ragged, tattered, and torn. There's a version of this rabbit when we first got it, so fluffy, so new, and, and I remember the first few times we threw it in the washer and dryer because with children, anything goes, right? And you practically have to throw everything in the washer and dryer at some point. And I remember thinking when we threw this thing in the washer and dryer the first couple times, thinking, oh, no, like the fluffiness is going to be ruined, taken away. The rabbit's not going to be the same. And, And the rabbit's not the same as it was when we first got this thing when she was born. But I can say with confidence, and I think my daughter would agree, that the bunny with the hair loved off is the better bunny. When you you think about the Apostle Paul, and you go back to the earlier chapters of the book of Acts, you, you have a man who was sharp around the edges, a man who was easily breakable, a man with a fragile ego, a man who was easily threatened by anything and everything. You track the story of the apostle Paul who goes through a few things, does he not, right? If, you, if you're not familiar with Paul's story, go read 2 Corinthians 11. He was run through a few washers and dryers along the way, you might say. But as you follow Paul's story, the, the, the sharp edges are smoothed throughout the course of, of the narrative. The, the apostle Paul ends, ends up with this courage and calm that's unrivaled like anything we've ever seen. That, that in fact, you'll, you'll go on to read, he hasn't even written it yet, his, his greatest uh, letter as it pertains to what it means to live a life of joy, the book of Philippians. That's coming in Rome on the other side of the storm and everything else that Paul's gone through where he will say things like to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like far better to be with Jesus, take my life, it just doesn't matter that's the weathered Paul having gone through the storm. That's the more real version of the, the Apostle Paul to use that velveteen rabbit language. There's something real about a child of God who suffered through a storm or two. Ragged, yes, but, but with an honesty and a humility and a confidence and a calm. Perhaps you're one of those people. Perhaps you met a few of those people in the church. Knowing that God is doing something beyond our imagination for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. Keller himself says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, he says, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. Which is why I think that the most significant thing the Apostle Paul says in Acts 27 is found in verse 23. He says, this God I proclaim is one to whom I belong and whom I worship. How do we face the storms of life? By soaking in the truth that we belong to God, verse 23, and that he is present in the storm with us. I mean, think about it for a second. Think about the the most difficult moments of your life, the most difficult seasons of your life. Go back to the losing of a loved one, or perhaps the abandonment of a close friend that you thought would never leave you. Maybe the loss of a, a job that you thought would be yours forever probably not hard to remember who is with you in those moments, is it? That's because the the presence of those who love us in the midst of the storms is of immeasurable value. More than we need to know the why behind the storm, we need to know that God is with us and, and, and is present in and through the storm, that he's a part of the storm. I love these words from John Newton, an old hymn that he once wrote, where he said, be gone, unbelief. My Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer, let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. One of my favorite things about C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Go ahead and laugh. You should read it if you want to keep up with our church. I'm just saying. <laughs> but if you haven't, let me... Let me catch up to speed really quickly. One of my favorite things, there's a lion figure by the name of Aslan. He's the Christ figure in the story, the great lion that Lewis means for us to see the beauty of Christ all the more by encountering the lion in this fictional story. And then there are some kids that are part of the, the most famous book within the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the four Pevensey kids. Lucy's the youngest. She represents childlike faith as you track her interaction with The lion. One of my favorite things about the Chronicles are are those moments when Lucy and Aslan, the great lion, interact with each other, and and, and you get to see a little bit of a glimpse of what abiding might look like. There's this moment in the story Prince Caspian, part of the series, where uh, the Pevensey kids have been brought back to Narnia, and they're a part of of a war uh, that... Uh, is meant to be one in the name of Aslan, and they're trying to get to where the battle is actually taking place. And like the apostle Paul, they're they're just being tossed not in in the sea, but but in the great darkened forest of Narnia, and, and are trying to find their way through. And nothing's easy at this point in in the story. And and Aslan shows up, and and you encounter uh, Lucy, the first to see him in this story um, at at a point midway through the story, and and this is where it picks up. It says this. A circle of grass, smooth as a lawn, met her eyes with dark trees dancing all around it. And then, oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion, shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. Before the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion, but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. Sorry, need a moment. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. The next thing she knew was that she was kissing him, putting her arms as far around his neck as she could, and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, which means I'm interpreting it rightly as I'm crying right before your very eyes. At last, it goes on to say, Lucy buried her head in his mane to hide from his face because he's good, but he's also king. But there must have been magic in his mane she could feel lion strength going into her. Quite suddenly, she sat up. I'm sorry, Aslan, she said. I'm ready now. You're a lioness, said Aslan, and now all Narnia will be renewed, but come, we have no time to lose. It, we we in, the, in the American South, we, we're quick to use this language of, Christianity is about a relationship, not a religion. We wanna contrast the two R words, make sure that we're clear on that. But I'm not sure even when we take that language of Christianity being a relationship that many mean what Lucy means as it pertains to intimacy with the great lion, with the Christ figure. We mean, yeah, it's not about rules. It's not about uh, the, the institution. It's not about the checking of boxes to get yourself right with God. But will we go as far as Lucy will go to say it's about being with the lion? You you think about it. I mentioned they're in the darkened forest of Narnia, just like Paul and his friends are on the darkened seas. And yet, if you read this part of, of the story of Prince Caspian, you begin to see the circumstances actually blur and fade to the peripheral edges of the story because they're just not as important as the lion. So that whatever comes next for Lucy, bring it on. It doesn't matter if on the other side of this encounter with the great lion, there, there's a, a meadow full of daisies or a cliff. It just doesn't matter. I think of Job, story of Job where in the midst of everything being stripped away from Job, that he could say in the end, the ultimate lesson of Job, God, my, I'd heard of you, but now my eyes see you. I see something more of the great lion. Job will be the first to meet us in heaven and say everything that you read about in my story, which is actually God's story ultimately, was worth it for seeing the great lion all the more. Christianity declares that we have the very presence of the lion in the midst of every single storm. The one who, to use Lewis's language, gives his people lion strength. It's one of the best hyphenated words I've ever heard in my life. In the midst of a ship in pieces, he gives lion strength. He's the one who will work the most raging wave that could ever come your way for your good. Paul knows in the midst of the storm, as he's being tossed in the washer and the dryer, that he's being truly loved somehow. Again, Paul would go on to write in the city of Rome, the book of Philippians, what many Christians call the joy book of the Bible. How is that possible? He's actually not as fortified as he will be when he will write those words, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Kill me or don't, either way, I win. And he's not so much talking about heaven as he is heaven's king. Because he will go on to say in that book, my desire is to depart and be in heaven, for that's far better. No, that's not what Paul writes. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better Christ is in the storm, and he waits on the other side of life's greatest storm of death. Either way, the line is ours, church. Which brings me to the second recurring theme. This one a little more brief as we close this morning. Second recurring theme throughout the book of Acts, that of witness. That when you have the kind of ballast for the soul that the apostle Paul had, You become an unstoppable witness, to use the language of that sermon series title that we decided to go with. That God strengthens our witness through storms as we declare the Lion of Judah to be enough in the the midst of the great sea billows of life. That sometimes storms come so that not only will we see and abide more in Jesus, but so that people will see the Jesus who sustains us for who he truly is. That even the storms of life for the Christian can and do have great meaning and purpose, right? The gospel spreading by way of a ship in pieces. How crazy is that? So, that I would say this to you as we get ready to close this morning don't waste the storms, don't waste a, a drop of any given wave lean into the presence of the lion in the midst of every single crashing wave, declaring his greatness and love to any and all within earshot. Sink or swim that Jesus Christ to whom we belong, if you're a Christian, is the great ballast for the soul.